it's important for me to acknowledge that sometimes like it has not been sustainable and that that's okay. Yes, the practice will always be with you. But if you think of the practice as something where you have to like roll out a yoga mat, then you've missed the point. The practice is a practice of thought, is a practice of breath, is a practice of existence, is a practice of how you treat yourself and others. So if treating yourself best, if non-harming, if non-attachment means leaving behind your physical practice or doing yoga, good, leave it. Hi everyone, welcome back to Unfiltered Sash. I'm your host, Sasha, and I am so excited and grateful that you're here. Thank you for coming back to the podcast. If you're new here, this is a space for you to become empowered and inspired to connect with your most authentic embodied self. I offer different lenses of analysis, modalities, and conversations to help you cultivate a deeper relationship with yourself and identify the most authentic way for you to do so. There is no one size fits all. And so this space is for you to figure out what fills your cup. Today, I'm speaking to Katie Henslow, who is a yoga teacher, yoga teacher trainer, and has been leading the Core Power Yoga 200-hour teacher trainings in New York City for almost two years. I took my 200-hour with her, and today we're talking about the aesthetics of wellness, fitness industry pre and post-COVID, energy management and boundaries, westernization of yoga, and so many other important topics. While we come at this conversation from a lens of two yoga teachers, this conversation is applicable to anyone who works in or participates in the fitness industry, whether that is yoga, Pilates, rumble, kickboxing, anything that fills your cup. This conversation is a really interesting opportunity to reflect and get honest with yourself. Let's kick it off into the show. Hello. Hi. Welcome. This is Sasha, and I'm so excited to be speaking today to Katie Hensel. Katie is lead instructor or yoga teacher, yoga teacher trainer for Core Power Yoga. She is also managing a studio on the Upper East Side right now. So I actually did my 200 hour with Katie a year ago now. It's crazy to look back on that. And I learned so much from her, just the way in which she held space and honored the practice through her own unique lens and experience. And I am so excited for you to hear from her today. So Katie, do you want to say hi, introduce yourself and tell the listeners what you are up to? Yes. Hi, Sasha. Thank you so much for having me on. I am just so excited to like have this big conversation around kind of what the fitness or the Western yoga community looks like right now, especially post-COVID. So yeah, I've been teaching yoga about four and a half years in leadership and doing teacher trainings for about two years and now managing a yoga studio for almost six months. So all lenses, hopefully. Awesome. And by way of background, can you tell us about what brought you to yoga? I know you've been in the space for four years, but how did you find yoga and what kept you there? This is going to sound exactly like I would say 50% of teachers, at least in this city, which is I grew up a dancer. And I think that growing up, moving your body every single day is a good habit. And I'm also really always grateful that I've found a way to sustain that like amount of movement. So I moved in every crazy way my whole life. 
ballet, tap, and jazz in studio, and then a competitive cheerleader, which is so bad for your joints. Then I went to high school in Texas. So I was on the drill team, the high kicks and the jump split. And then in college, I was on the Latin ballroom dance team. So some form of movement, no matter what. And I would say that I found yoga through my mother. She is a similar, never stop moving a day in her life. She probably found yoga through LA Fitness, no joke, and made me come to her favorite teacher who I've had no context at the time, but who was really quite a great instructor. And it was a really happy accident, actually having a regular practice and finding a teacher training. I was supposed to go to a fitness class with my mom and my dear friend, Kara. And Kara and I were running late and my mom was like, don't come. You're going to be late. It's disrespectful. And you know what? She was right. So Kara and I had to retire to a bagel shop and figure out where to take yoga. And we Googled the words free yoga. And of course, core power yoga was the first thing that came up. So we were like, oh, a free week. It was summer. We had a free week. So we signed up for a free week. We went to class. And very funnily, my first class was with an instructor in Dallas named Sean at Core Power. And he ended up being a part of my teacher training. And he taught an impossible first class. I just remember laughing and thinking, you've got to be kidding with some of the shapes you're making. Because he had definitely been in it for like 10 years. He was just like, inhale, handstand, exhale, whatever. And I was like, oh, no. So Karen and I did our free week. I think I took five classes in my free week. And on my second class, I signed up for teacher training. It was ridiculous. They were like, do you want to do teacher training? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Yes. They were like, oh, should you? And I was like, yeah, definitely. For sure. So I signed up. I was probably 19, about to turn 20. And I did my teacher training over a summer in Dallas while I was at NYU for my undergrad. And that was dad. Thank you so much for sharing. So it sounds like movement has always been a part of your personal practice. And like you said, hard on the joints, but I think that movement really provides such an amazing way to get out of your head and into your body, especially in the city. Like the mm -hmm. city, I've said it a few times, but it feels sometimes muting to me because there's always noise. There's always sound. Like you can be sitting in a park and probably still hear the buzzes of not even probably, you will hear the buzzes of the sirens and the cars. And I think that movement, especially if you can get into a flow state, kind of entraps you into your body and into more freedom than a lot of other spaces in the city can provide. Is there one of those modalities or one of those movements that were particularly freeing for you to really connect with your like inner world and how do you sustain the movement of, okay, I'm a highly active person. I am doing, you know, auditions. I am teaching yoga. I'm running around the city. How do you sustain that level of activity with giving your body like rest and making sure that the movement is still as purposeful as it originally probably started out to be? Well, that is a big question. And what I love about how you worded that was like, an intentional movement, right? A, a movement with a reason. What I remember from when I started practicing yoga was, and I think a lot of people who've spent a lot of time building like the muscles required in dance and building a certain range of motion, don't find a lot of the postures particularly difficult. And I think it's also important to be honest coming at this conversation from that lens that, you know, 
this is a practice that might not be accessible to other people in the way that it was initially to me. The thing that I didn't find accessible that I found challenging and exciting was actually the breath. I remember being like, how are people breathing when they're told to? That's crazy. How are they inhaling and exhaling as they're told? And it must have taken at least a few months for the rhythm of yoga to become something natural or the rhythm of vinyasa yoga. Because as we know, there's a million different right ways to breathe as long as you're just breathing. So I remember breath being the thing that I didn't have an innate understanding of that was exciting. And in a similar sense in this city, I think that that can be a thing that is more regulating than any physical shape. I've just been thinking about a lot how as we get older and as we move into like whatever our career is, we have so little opportunity for movement. And in New York, that's less true, mercifully, because so many of us walk to wherever we're going. So many of us commute on our feet. But we still just like driving home and you like black out and you roll up in your driveway. I think the same thing can happen on your feet. So what I hope for my students is not just that they can leave the noise of the city behind, but that they can find an hour to know exactly where each of their toes is or what it feels like to simply be on their feet, back, legs, wherever. I love that a lot of the way that you speak to things is in service. I'd love to turn it back on you too. So how do you find that within yourself? Well, when I started practicing yoga, I remember it being so much more informed by ego because I think that's the thing that any performance-based movement, even high performance in like any athletic space, right? There is the way that it should look. There is the way that it should move through space. There is a goal, right? And it was very hard for me to detach in our practice from, okay, there is not an aesthetic right. The only thing that we really are looking for visually is safe alignment to protect our bodies for a long time. The only thing that we're looking through in movement with space is to take up space, to be in space in our own bodies. And then the only thing that we're looking at as a goal is maybe to practice in general, not to show up on our mats every single day, not that our practice has to be physical. So to detach a physical practice from those things was like, I'm sure that took years. I remember it took years. And I think the answer to your question of like what it looks like now or what I receive from it is much gentler, has much less like force or internal evaluation. Instead, it is like I wish I could do my whole practice with my eyes closed a lot of the time because it is simply a system of regulation or a check in or a way to know that I'm in the present moment and nowhere else. I love that. What you said about eyes closed, I definitely resonate with that. I try to keep my eyes closed for as much as I can, but my balance is absolutely horrendous. Um, I yes. had to relearn how to ride a bike every single year as a kid. <laughs> every summer, I would have to like get on as if it was the first time. My family would be like, oh man, we can't help her. But I, you know, I rode a bike uh, just a few months ago for the first time in years and I didn't have to relearn. It was the most joyous thing. I digress. Anyway. Was it a city bike or was it? No, I would be scared to death. <laughs> it was in the middle of nowhere in Florida, wide open street. And my partner was like, hey, do you want to like ride down to downtown on the bikes? I'm like, at night? 
around cars. Like, no, no, I can't. I can't do that. <laughs> you know, I have my limits, but we'll be smart. Uh, <laughs> so talking a little bit about your experience in the fitness industry, especially how you started versus where you are now with it. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience pre-COVID and then post-COVID? Mm. I like your wording of fitness industry because I do feel like I segment these two things in my brain. That core power, which is most where I've spent my time, but not the only place I've spent my time. I segment those things as well, like yoga sculpt and the workout classes, very separate from any intentional yoga practice. I think the fitness industry, the sense that I get or that I don't remember before, before it really felt like people almost did it more casually. Now, it feels in New York, like people come in for class, ready to throw down their shit on the floor, for lack of a better word. And they are so exhausted, so done with whatever's going on this is like their only hour and it's like the only thing that might sustain them on this day or they're hoping it is so there has definitely almost been a shift towards desperation like i i that's what it has felt like like everyone comes in with a deep sigh i don't know have you noticed anything like that i can only speak to my experience not even on the teaching end but more from a personal side I am a big gym person, gym in the mornings, teaching in the evenings or taking class. And so Mm -hmm. when I was coming into the spaces, I think a lot of the times because I had been putting my body under such pressure, I was looking for that quick fix, like the next thing, like you said, the sigh of like, maybe this will save me. And I'm speaking to you from a time where this marks day seven. I haven't been to the gym in seven days. I couldn't tell you the last time that that occurred. I was really sick last week. And I was also freaking out because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm sick now. I'm getting a tattoo on Sunday and I won't be able to go to the gym for so long. And I had visceral anxiety. Just because you don't go to the gym does not make you not a person who values their fitness. And I had to really sit with that worry within myself. And I had some meditations, question meditations, like, why are you worried about this? What's at the root of it? So I kept asking why. Oh, why are you scared to not go to the gym? Okay, why are you scared to this and that? And so I got down to the root and I finally got to a place where I made my peace with it in a sense and wrote down, I don't have to go to the gym to feel good enough. And that I was like, Wow. Because I was going to the gym to feel good enough because I had made it such a big part of my identity. Like, I'm a gym girl. I do fitness. Some people reevaluate their relationship with alcohol, with drugs, with whatever they're using to cope. I had to reevaluate my relationship with the gym in the same way. When I came back to the gym last year, I had been through a pretty traumatic experience. And I had to go to the gym because that was how I knew how to survive. I knew that I needed a reason to wake up. I needed to work out for two hours to clear my mind. I needed to cope and numb in other ways. And now in this phase of my life where I'm in undergoing the healing, the transformation journey, I'm like, okay, I became that person because I needed to survive. But who can I become to thrive? 
And it's probably not the person that goes to the gym for two hours and then takes yoga. This past week, I feel so much more at ease in my body, regulated from a fitness, a stress, and a nutritional perspective. And I'm like, wow, that ability to inquire and to sink into it and be like, let me explore that. That's the only thing that really got me out of that cycle of entering those spaces and being like, well, maybe this is the next thing. And then I'm going to run to the next place. And I show up onto my mat two minutes before class. And then I do the thing. And then I run out because I'm late to somewhere else. All of that goes to say, like, yes, I absolutely, being on the other end of it, see how I have been creating urgency or using it as a to-do list, a checkbox, or a hope that it will fix me in a way that only I can offer that piece to myself. And that's a space to connect with myself. And if I'm not using it in that way, like it's actually going to add to my stress and add to my feeling of dissociation from my body rather than connect me with my body. Well, I love that it's been so recent for you, like in the last week even of being forced to sit still. And I have been thinking about that being forced to stop a lot because that happened for some people in like the professional fitness realm with COVID and we were forced to reevaluate our relationships with our own practice, our relationship with teaching. But on the flip side of maybe our pausing, I do think it was this beautiful thing where a lot of people fell in love with movement. A lot of people fell in love with yoga and a lot of people created content that was more accessible, especially during the height of the pandemic, because they had time. You know, what do we do when we have extra time? And I think it is always a beautiful and a human thing that we move more, we go outside more, we talk to people we love more, we create more art, we make bread, apparently. Apparently we all make bread. <laughs> and it maybe should be a wake-up call that when all that happened, I was like, yeah, I'm good on yoga for a minute. But when you do let it transform either into something that you're forcing or into something that is a like, I don't want to say like an urge, you know? But it can, it can, because you spoke to having maybe a slightly addictive relationship with it or having to reevaluate that quality and exercise like any of those other things you mentioned, food, your relationship with alcohol, your relationship with other things. It's causing a hormonal release in your body. It is creating similar changes in your levels of endorphins, dopamine, et cetera. So you do have to be honest with it like anything else. In your experience in working in the mm -hmm. fitness industry, I know you've said a little bit about what it's been like since COVID. Less of that purposeful movement that we might have seen during COVID, like the slow regulated movement and more of the frantic, my life is back in full swing and I have to do the thing and go to the class. Um, what has it been like as a professional holding space for others, both in yoga, and then as a teacher trainer. You're right, because there's been a shift there too. When I did my teacher training, there were 12 of us. And I remember teacher trainings being smaller, more intimate at the time. And I could certainly spend a lot of time talking about how teacher training is sold for profit and not for like the reasons that it ought to be offered, right? Because in a perfect world, it would be free for everybody or just to compensate those people who maybe are in charge or leaving it. There's definitely been a shift in why people have been called to it. I remember in your teacher training, asking the room what had brought them to that space. And 
it began in March of 2022. So it was shortly after we just had the spikes of both Omicron and Delta and people were kind of easing back into public life. And I remember at least half of the room just saying a lot of them were recent New York transplants or had been inside in New York for these two years. So a lot of people sought their practice and then teacher training also as a means for social interaction, as a means to build communities. And I don't think that that piece of the practice should be overlooked. I think another thing that has kept me coming back has always been the good people that this space attracts. And in teaching at other studios, I have found the same to be a pretty universal truth that pretty good people are attracted to this practice and to caring about it. I do think as a teacher, in a sense, it has been easier to hold space because there's like a capacity for honesty. There's a capacity for like, there could be myriad things that you are coping with dealing with and that brought you to your practice. And like, my job is not to therapize you. My job is not to offer you a solution. My job is simply to be here. That's what it has boiled down to. When it comes to teacher training, it's a unique feeling because, I mean, to an extent, people sign up for teacher training because they think it's going to change their lives. And often they are right. But what I've had to coach myself on consistently is that like, I am not the life changer. I am not some godsend to save their problems or something. I'm just a person who knows a certain amount about a subject. And I'm going to do my best to deliver that information to them and to hold space for them to exist in their bodies, to learn more about their practice, and to apply that learning however it makes sense for them. The challenges are still going to be that maybe they're looking for a miracle in yoga, which isn't there. And that's a good thing that it isn't there. You are still a human. You're still going to be a human when you graduate teacher training and you're not going to have the secret to the universe. Sorry. But other than that, I think similarly to teaching, you could show up tired needing two different Celsius cans in front of you. But at the end of the day, you receive a lot more energy from 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 people in a room than you can possibly hope to give. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> I know that it's been such an honor and a privilege to be able to be a coach in training and at least once a week come in and be a part of the sessions and help facilitate in in whatever way I can or learning in that capacity. I think last week we had a really important conversation about the westernization of yoga and what it means to honor the practice while also honoring the way in which we experience it. And so I'd love to just dive into your thoughts on westernization of yoga, whether you feel we're honoring it, any thoughts you have on the subject? Well, and a big subject it is. One that I don't think it's right to begin without acknowledging that we are two white women in this space and that we have no doubt benefited from a certain amount of privilege or ability that has led to us being able to go through teacher training, being able to afford it, being able to afford having second or then first jobs in this industry, which uh, across the board doesn't pay super duper, which is a thing that I hope is known to all, but if not, there you go. I've always been very grateful that I've ended up in very honest 
spaces with people who were willing, able, and educated to hold space for discomfort and to be really transparent. I know that the same is not true for a lot of people who have gone through teacher trainings, whether through this organization or another. My teacher training was led by four individuals who clearly cared much more about the roots of the practice, the tradition, and the history than might have been present in the literal material they were given. Once I sat in the seat to lead, I understood what they had adjusted, what they had shifted, and was so grateful for it. And like the conversation that we had last week, to an extent, you have to ignore directions to honor the tradition and history of this practice. And above all, you have to seek out voices, promote voices, uplift voices that have more personal knowledge than you, that are more not equipped, but rightfully posed to, I guess, speak about these things, right? We're talking about elevating voices, satya or truthfulness, one of the yoga yamas or restraints is so important because in truthfulness, what voices are you elevating and whose truth are you listening to? Whose mm -hmm. truth are you choosing to understand, learn from, and then honestly circulate? Because when you become a teacher, you are holding space for an entire hour. You are speaking for an hour to students who get into a meditative trance, right? So mm. you are kind of programming people's thoughts. <laughs> what truth are you choosing to share? I think that that is, you know, I sometimes laugh about it. I'm like, I could go up there and say whatever I want for an hour. There's a really good way to use that time. And there's also potential harm that you could do. So you had mentioned the seat of the teacher. I heard this quote, heavy is the seat of the teacher because you have a great deal of responsibility, not only to honor the students that you have in the space, but to also honor the practice and choose to elevate not only the voices that are louder in our society, but also the ones that lean more into the lineage and the roots of yoga more so than maybe some of the voices that are louder in the space and way in which we are practicing. Well, yeah. And it's a teeter-totter balance beam, right? In any conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, you want to uplift those voices that have this ingrained understanding of what it means to practice in a Western civilization if they have roots in a culture that yoga is from. At the same time, it is not right, it is not fair to ask people of color only to hold all of this space, to have these difficult conversations, to put all of the impetus on them. So you are right that in teaching, it is your responsibility to hold space, to create a space for everyone to experience their practice to enter that meditative space and be held. And I think it comes back to, if you don't know what you're talking about, shut your mouth. And I mean that. And I, I sometimes wish I could tell myself that from the beginning. Because when you start teaching, if you only do a 200 hour, you have scratched the surface. And a lot of that surface might be the asana, the physical poses. And it's important to be able to teach people how to practice without spraining an ankle. I'll honor that that's important. At the same time, if you haven't spent the time to learn about the other seven limbs of your practice, you need to. Those are things you need to speak to in that space all of the time, forever and ever. If you haven't studied 
the yamas, the niyamas, to a point, just speak to them openly, apply them to your own practice and offer them to others. You need to do the work. You need to seek out information and not in a way that you make other people responsible for what you know. You need to follow the people who are giving honest representation of these materials. You need to seek out classes with instructors who have better words to say than your own. And you need to really live it in order to represent it honestly, I guess. I love what you said about voices that are smarter than your own because I go to this class weekly, Dustin Maxwell, and he teaches in Williamsburg. And I don't know what it is. He puts me in a meditative trance. He always talks about the sutras and he's what inspired me to actually go read the yoga sutras. So I'm studying the sutras on a daily basis. Like I read one sutra, I contemplate it and I think about it. And that has enhanced my understanding of the practice so, so much. And my ability to really also feel like I'm honoring it in a different way, right? Not just that I know the chakras or I've done some extra trainings, but really like I'm sitting with the scripture and being in the seat of the teacher. I think that we often, while we create space, there is some potential for like energy transfer. Like you pick, you're around a lot of people in fitness. And I'm sure for you every day as a studio manager, as a teacher, as a teacher trainer, you are running around and you are oftentimes kind of soaking up other people's energy. Maybe somebody's having a bad day. You feel that. Maybe somebody's having a really good day. Like it's going to rub off on you. And I think that to some degree, we are all collective. We all feel other people's energy and we can, to some degree, guard ourselves off and be like, I don't have to carry your energy, but sometimes we do end up carrying it. And it's our job to clear it because while the pain or the stress or the anger is not yours, the experience of it becomes yours. And so you have to start clearing it out. And so I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about energy management. How do you manage your energy when you're around a lot of people on a daily basis? And sometimes they have an expectation that you are a yoga teacher and teacher trainer. Like you're here to listen to me. How do you manage your energy and manage expectations? I have been learning a lot recently about how to walk away from things, how to say no, and how to set boundaries, which might be the challenge that is with us our whole lives. When it comes to a class, I mean, that's an hour where you know what you have to do. And ideally, you show up as a human and not as a performance. So I've learned, especially since COVID times, to just show up with honesty on my plate. And that that can be just as appreciated as not. Also, that our students' experience is so not about us. We can really show up with whatever is going on and... Our words inform some of their thoughts, but most of it is their own. And that's a good thing. In teacher training, it can look like leading from where you're strongest. I think some people lead from a very grounded space. I think some people lead from a sense of humor. That's absolutely where I lead from. I think it's important to hone things that you're most passionate about. So show up excited when you're excited and be honest when you're not. and there are days you got nothing, you know. There are days you have to pull it out of your butt, and that's okay. And I, I have found it to be more fruitful to just be honest and be like, hey, y'all, rough day. This happened. So glad to be here. Let's start. Just, it's not about me, you know. And if it's ever really, really about me, then I need to pull myself up from that space. Mm. 
I love what you said about that. It's not your class. It's the student's practice. And if you are ever in a place where you feel like it's about you, maybe like dial it back and see where that's coming from. We are all humans living the human experience. Things are going to happen. Ultimately, you have to realize that just as vivid and insane and crazy as your experience is in your own body and in your own life, everybody else is living in their own little universes that are just as vivid. And so oftentimes when, you know, you are holding space, whether that is in a practice or for a friend, you just need to hold space and just be there for them. Like they can inquire within themselves. They can introspect. And sometimes it's great to just have a witness there to witness you in whatever phase or stage or however you are. Because I have found in my personal experience that just being witnessed exactly as I am has been sometimes the greatest cure. Not even being fixed by someone or offered solutions, but rather just being able to completely take a deep breath and be like, okay, like this is where I'm at. And just having that openness like releases a lot of guilt or shame or thought of I should feel this way or should feel that way. I'm curious, based on the yoga values that you did learn or the yoga philosophies that you did learn versus the ones that you've kind of stuck to and applied, which values would you say are the most important or have been the most important in the way that you live your life? Well, recently, the thing showing up the most is non-attachment, which has myriad lenses. But in speaking to that idea of it not being about me, a valuable takeaway from four and a half years or like about 1500 classes is just like you said, people's internal experience is so vivid. There have been days when I taught what I thought was the best class of my life and people have left and it was like nothing happened and that's fine. I've also taught classes where I was like, oh, we barely trucked through. And then someone was like, that's the best class I ever took. Hopefully that offers a piece of relief that your only job is to show up, you know? that person like I wonder how much of it was you versus how much of it was in their head like they created the best class of their lives yeah I've never created an epiphany for someone they did that (laughs) you are your own guru you are your own best guide and if anybody's trying to sell you I have the cure like the cure is within you Mm -hmm. I'll say that flat out I know that we spoke a few weeks ago when I had first invited you on the podcast And I know that you took some time to sit with that. Can you tell us about what you were sitting with and maybe some of the learnings and growth and what you've been navigating more recently with your journey? Yeah. I remember in your initial DM, you had said beautiful, beautiful words. I was so grateful. But you were like, I want you to come on and speak about following a career that's like led by your passion. And I was like, Sasha, I got to be really honest with you. The passion bucket is empty. We're just showing up at this point. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. We had a conversation about there is so much now marketing and sentiment towards healing. And it's just freaking exhausting. There's no point where all of a sudden you can snap your fingers and you healed. There's no point where you can heal your way out of being a human being. So you can't heal your way out of the fact that you're going to be sad and that bad things are going to happen to you. You just have to process. So yoga is not necessarily a space for healing. It's just a space to exist, to process, and to move on to the next thing that's probably going to floor you. And that's fine. So yes, I was like, Sasha, I can't honestly speak to this like 
oh my God, I'm living my passion every day. Here's how I show up fully and authentically. Sometimes I don't show up authentically because authenticity would make my students run and leave and go to Starbucks. And that's fine. I love that truthful honesty. And mm, everything you just said really hit in terms of pursuing your passion versus passion bucket being empty, showing up. How have you navigated your career being fitness, which is what you love, right? Because mm -hmm. I think there's two ways to do it. There's fitness being a full-time career mm -hmm. and your livelihood depends on it. So your passion becomes your source of sustaining the entire way in which you live versus there is where it's a part-time job and you have a full-time job and maybe you don't feel fulfilled in the full-time job and you sit there and you're like, oh, well, I wish I could pursue my passion full-time or something like that. But I think there is that fundamental shift when you make something your full-time, when you are fully dependent on it, it is a huge shift in your relationship with that. So how has that been your relationship with your passion and your career being one and the same? Yeah, you know, it's a dead lie. Do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. No, work is work. And if you take your passion and you make it your work, bad news or good news, it's going to be work because it's supposed to be. I don't know. Human beings have had to work since the beginning of time to survive. So maybe we're always going to have to in different ways for each of us. When it comes to leading from like empty on the passion buckets, it's okay to lead from skill. Sometimes it's okay to lead from tenure. Sometimes it's okay to lead from coffee. And I think it has just looked like you mentioned, you know, when it becomes full-time physical, what is that like? I think something I hear discussed very rarely is endemic injury in this space for all that we are supposed to be like, oh, yoga is the best thing for you. And my cousin had scoliosis and it's cured. And my neighbor had XYZ issue and yoga cured it. All this mythos surrounding it can be harmful language when the people who are maybe teaching, practicing yoga 20, 40 hours a week are like, um, my whole body hurts. I go to the doctor all the time. I'm in physical therapy. My joints creak. And regardless of the fact that this practice is low impact and meant to be sustainable, this as a career perhaps is not, right? Or it is not unless you pull back a lot. I've been learning that the hard way. I've had some injuries in the last year. But just like you expressed with being sick for a week, I think injuries make you pull back and look at things in a different way. I had to pull back and be like, okay, what would my practice look like if it was never physical again? And that's fine. And there is so much to explore there. And what does it look like to focus on what otherwise beyond the physical yoga has constantly done and shown up as in my life? I was thinking about how no matter what, at the end of the class, there's like this feeling, this rest and digest in my nervous system. There is this uh, breath out, right? And I really do believe I'll continue to show up in some capacity towards a practice for the rest of my life. But that full-timeness makes you reevaluate how that's going to look. One thing that you said, I absolutely loved it. You were closing out a class during that teacher training and you said, before the final rest or before Shavasana, you said, know that you can enjoy rest at any time, no matter what came before it. And I was like, 
writing that down, using that, because I think so often that we feel like we have to have been productive or have to have used our time wisely to deserve rest. Or even sometimes in the way that we speak, whether that's leading a class or whether that's talking to our friends, oh, you got ice cream? Amazing. You deserve it. Like you don't have to deserve anything. I get a little physical like "Mm," when anyone tells me you deserve it. I don't want to deserve anything. Like I can just do and be. I don't want to have had to earn something because when you say earn or deserve, it creates the other side of the spectrum to where you have not earned something. You do not deserve something. And I think that's a fundamental restrictiveness and a suffocation almost Mm. of yourself as a human to tell yourself that you haven't earned it yet or you don't deserve it. That is so suffocating and stifling on your worthiness and your experience. And it tells you that you need to reach some level of achievement or some level of X, Y, Z before you can then maybe be worthy of something. But I think your self-worth starts with you. The permission starts with you. And so when you said that you can have this rest no matter what came before it, that was just so, so freeing. And looking back on it now, you said that literally two days before I got sick and I had my week of rest. And so it was almost like you're my intuitive, like, hey, by the way, it's, it's going to be okay, Sasha. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nowadays, when I hear that, it is just as like, you're kidding. As when people are like, get that beach bod, which is just like, you better stop. But same thing. When I get to the end of class and someone's like, you worked so hard. You deserve these few minutes. I'm like, I deserve a million trillion minutes. And I didn't have to do one high to low plank to deserve them. And yeah, you're right. When we start to create binaries like that, deserve and worth and what is good, what is bad, etc. The only thing bad is something that actively harms you. Other than that, release that mentality. Life will get better. What have you done to make life better, to fill your own cup? I know you mentioned navigating a few injuries this year, navigating the passion cup being on empty and kind of having to just show up and do the work. What have you been doing to, one, reestablish your relationship with yourself and to fill your own cup? I do count myself lucky that my cup is filled by being around people. So one beautiful thing is that see a lot of people that I love all the time at my job. One of the things that makes teacher training such a joyful experience is A, being with this coaching team of human beings who I just trust so implicitly, who I can show up as whatever I've got going on to, and they are excited to be there. It is a beautiful thing to also witness people find each other because that's a gift that I've gotten from this practice, this industry, this community. Besides community too, I wish the answer weren't physical. I'm like beating myself up a little bit in my head for this. Yesterday, I went to a ballet class with a real dear friend from yoga, of course. And it's been years since I did ballet. But I have found that the more time I spend in this space where I am the teacher, where it is my problem, my responsibility, that I need to do physical stuff that has nothing to do with it. When my practice became restrictive in terms of freedom, when it became, I can't take a class without hearing people's cueing language, without evaluating their sequence, without evaluating my own body and my experience, 
then I clearly need to go do other things. And that's okay. It is okay to step back. Be like, okay, I'm not going to practice yoga at all this month. I'm just going to take dance classes, do weird stuff in the park. And well, you can't swim in this city, but I don't know. Swim in the lake. I love that. You mentioned beating yourself up in your head. I think I get that because you're like, well, I just told you that I don't want to overwork my body. (laughs) But I think it's more, are you embodying? We move our bodies all the time, right? We're walking, we're running. But when you're in probably in those dance classes, you are tuned inwards rather than looking outwards versus when you're in yoga right now, Mm -hmm. you are tuned outwards. You're listening to the teacher's cues. You're assessing the sequence potentially what dance offers you is that chance to truly tune inwards and to not hear cues, to not hear voices, but to feel your body and have that somatic experience more so than a I'm a human teaching experience. Sometimes when a fellow instructor, and I'm guilty of this, when they take my class, I'm like, what would you fix? What would you change? You know, they probably just wanted to like go there and not think about that. And here I am going, what did you like and not like? Maybe not. And they asked me too. fellow instructors are like, hey, like, what would you have changed? But regardless of teaching, we talked a lot about the realities of making your passion your full time job. What fills your cup being the people in the space and the people around you? What, if anything, from your practice has enabled this fitness as full time to be sustainable? Is it coming back to yoga itself? Is it other forms of movement? Is it truly just the people? Or is it even the mental aspect of it? What about yoga has enabled this to be as sustainable as it can be? It's important for me to acknowledge that sometimes like it has not been sustainable and that that's okay. When it has been sustainable, yes, it has been people for me. That's an important thing. It has been the mental aspects. And I mean, there is so much language around working out around fitness anyway. It's like, do it because it helps your brain. And as trite as that is, if it hadn't helped my brain, I probably wouldn't be in as good of a position as I am, right? I wouldn't have been able to tolerate, cope with, and move past certain things. So... Yes, those things keep me coming back. No, they don't have to keep me coming back. And there would also be no good or bad in leaving it behind for a time or permanently. I think that's another thing that happens when you go through teacher training too. People are always like, these people will be with you for life. And this practice, right, is now for the rest of your life. And that can also be a piece of something that feels trapping or that feels restrictive. Yes, the practice will always be with you. But if you think of the practice as something where you have to like roll out a yoga mat, then you've missed the point. The practice is a practice of thought, is a practice of breath, is a practice of existence, is a practice of how you treat yourself and others. So if treating yourself best, if non-harming, if non-attachment means leaving behind your physical practice or doing yoga, good, leave it. Mm, I love that you just brought in the non-attachment, the non-harm. and the realities of how we have been taught to almost exploit the things that are healthy. One, they are marketed as the fix and the cure. Mm -hmm. And two, instead of sometimes slowing down and pulling back, 
we just dive into the next thing that's going to fix, that's going to do more. And sometimes it's about doing less and slowing down. And I think that depends on what state of nervous system regulation you're in, right? If you are in parasympathetic, rest and digest, but you're in more of the dorsal side, which is kind of like the really, really slow where you don't have motivation to get out of bed. You don't have motivation to do anything that you need a little bit more healthy stress. But if you're in the sympathetic fight or flight response, then you need to slow down and bring yourself out of it. I think that everybody has an inclination of where they lie, but slowing down is so key in giving yourself permission. If movement does not look like my practice today, that's okay. If it doesn't look like rolling out my mat today, that's okay. And I love that you just gave that permission to both yourself and everyone listening. I know in the beginning that we talked a little bit about accessibility of Mm. yoga and of somatic practices in general, right? Dance, movement. We, again, have had the privilege of being able to be in our bodies, to go through teacher training, to now be teachers. What do you think are the barriers to accessibility in fitness, in yoga, and how can we start to change the narrative there? Yeah, there are so many barriers, specifically in terms of corporate yoga, right? I think one barrier is how we think of yoga, that if we do think of it as the physical postures, we're immediately alienating a large audience. Like in terms of simply age, there are people who are not going to be able to stand or hold a plank for this amount of time. It's also unsafe for people who are under a certain age to practice in a heated space, or it is simply a liability that their parents can't sign off on, right? In terms of financial accessibility, so much of yoga is just a money-making scheme, and we should be so honest about that. Now, it's good that there are now these vehicles online to access this. I'm thinking of yoga by Adrian, but there are so many ways that, at least from the pandemic, I see it as a good thing that there are online accessibility points that didn't exist before. I think if we can deconstruct this idea of A, a physical practice being the end-all be-all that gives room for yoga to not be a thing you have to go into a space and pay money to do. It also gives permission for everybody to make shapes if they want to and not make shapes if it doesn't fit or isn't right. And the thing I see all the time, all the time, all the time is like a lot of our marketing is imagery. It has to be. We're visual creatures, maybe. But so much of this imagery is just aestheticized images and sometimes to sell yoga pants as well, which is its own issue. Whatever. You know, selling the aesthetics of these poses, the aesthetics of wellness, the aesthetic of health, which does not exist. Health is determined by your own listening to your internal system, right? And just determining what is best for you. And it should and it does look different for every single person. So I think there's a lot of barriers to even approaching the practice. I think it scares people. I think it alienates people because of the way it's presented in shop windows and in Instagram ads and on a worldwide scale. And having, you know, bachelor contestants on posters <gasps> and ads. <laughs> it is such a sticky overlap that there's no way to offer yoga 18 times a day if you're not paying people. There's no way to pay people if you don't take in money. And there's no way to take in money if you don't set a price on the practice, right? But I don't have the solution. I just know there's a problem. 
Yeah, that's so fair. You talked about it earlier, the fact that this industry is not the best paying industry. From a second job perspective, I'm spending three and a half hours on Monday nights and two hours on Tuesdays and you know, some other times if I'm subbing, I'm spending that mostly out of the goodness of my heart because I enjoy teaching. Like financially, it's it's not negligible. Like, I'm I'm there to I'm there to teach. Yep. <laughs> like and then you see how much the students are paying or investing. Putting a price on the practice is something that's so challenging because I think a lot of us are navigating New York is quite expensive. And while, yes, mm -hmm. it's totally okay to spend money on what's aligned with your authentic values, like if that's your practice, if that's movement, if that is spending time with your friends, if that's art, beauty, or learning in any way, totally find what your values are, your money code, and spend there. But I think the commodification or the price that we put on our time and attention and on different things does have the potential to bring up some abundance triggers or lack triggers or anxiety in people and take away from the actual purpose of set practice because you go there and part of you is thinking like every time maybe oh my gosh I'm paying x amount for monthly membership and then you show up there with that in the back of your mind at least that has been at certain points the case for me over others but I think that when you really start to bring in that capitalistic commodification model, it does start to distort what you are there to do and to share. And that's really challenging because it is the world in which we live. In your experience as a teacher trainer and teacher, what has been your way of navigating like the corporate or the politics side of this space? Mm. The corporate and the politics side is sticky because these are people who are drawn to this practice for very good reasons. So you end up with a lot of very good, very well-intentioned people in a space where you are handed down rules, regulations that you don't agree with, that you have little to no power to change because you're coming from a corporate hierarchy. You don't have like a mom and pop yoga shop, a single point of intention or disagreement. You have like I must do this. It is my job. End of story. And now that I've been managing a studio for a certain amount of time, it definitely is a communication barrier with instructors, mostly because every time they bring something up, I firmly agree with them and I have no power to fix or change it. And yeah, I mean, full transparency, you know, there was an article, I think it was 2018 in the New York Times, about the teacher training model at Core Power, that there was a lack of transparency around. When you went through training at that time, a lot of teacher slots were filled unless you were a new and developing region. And also full transparency. I was so lucky. I auditioned in Core Power in New York when they were opening two studios, and they desperately needed teachers. And in the market that I was originally trained in, there was like one open spot for 12 people. So A, there's an amount of luck with being hired in the first place. B, people who can or want to get hired have made the same sacrifices you talked about. They're doing it for the love of it, the passion of it. And then when it becomes full time, you're definitely sacrificing the fact that your skills could make you more money somewhere else for the fact that you're maybe around people that you love or doing something that fills your cup in some ways. I think 
the answer is that as long as there is a model that perpetuates bringing in new people, not supporting tenured instructors, tenured leaders, not giving them financial incentive to stay and divulge their skills and their education and all of these things that they've spent so much time accumulating, you're going to have massive turnover. You're going to have a constant cycle of new instructors teaching new students. And you're going to betray parts of the practice from a higher up level. And the trickle down is going to be felt and disliked by the people who fall under it. Mm. Wow. Betraying parts of the practice. And I totally agree. And I think that that's not, it's not even just yoga, right? Like this goes right. for any organization, any practice, any history. You have to respect the people that have been there to learn, to teach, and can share their wisdom. I think there's a lot to be said for how Core Power does bring in people that are new to yoga, like yourself, like myself. I had never done yoga before. It's very inviting, right? And I think at least it's a good place to start. It gets people to maybe come in and start to learn more about the world of yoga, which is great. Maybe they're there just for a workout or a sculpt class. I started to say, welcome to your yoga-inspired sculpt class. <laughs> so I'm just not going to call it a yoga sculpt. I can't. But anyway, so like there is something to be said for the fact that it brings people to the space and then it opens a door for them to maybe explore further. I also think what you covered about the duality it's people at the top that care about this practice. They see the value and they are trying to spread it in that same way. They're trying to share it with more people. At the same time, it is a business. It's incorporated. And so there's so much duality in that, in the both the benefit and the harm that it can cause. I think that we tend to get uncomfortable with that as humans, but we have to get a little bit more comfortable with duality. There can mm -hmm. be both benefit and harm. And these humans are creating both. We as humans create both. All of us do both harm and benefit. And that can be true. And that can exist. There is no one purely perfect, good person or all bad person. We all have all the spectrum within us and getting comfortable with that duality and choosing our own relationship not only with the duality, but with the particular organization, the particular person, whatever's in question, you have the opportunity to see that duality and evaluate how you want to relate to it. Distorting the practice was something that you said. What have been some of the ways that you've brought integrity and authenticity to your own practice, to the way you share it? And what are recommendations you might have for others looking to find more integrity in the way in which they practice? The thing I've leaned into hard in the teacher training space is that each of us is different an individual. And as such, each of us is going to have different aspects of the practice, aspects of the spiritual side and tools that we feel more passionate about. As a teacher, I would encourage everyone to lean into the things they want to learn about the most. Do not force yourself to learn about X, Y, Z beyond like a base understanding, if you have no passion or interest in speaking to it, if you don't relate to it, because what you relate to is what you can speak to. So if the thing that inspires you the most is chakra work, hone that. 
if the thing that keeps you going is in relation to our lunar cycles, our zodiac calendar, our whatever, whatever, every eclipse, et cetera, that's your thing. Great. Hone your thing. And as a student, perhaps then the answer is to find your thing or your things that make your practice personal and your own. I love how you spoke to the necessity of us being dual, if we're thinking in a binary sense, or no one is wholly good or wholly bad. And perhaps it is not unfair, but like every other corporation in America gets away with straight up murder. And we're saying, well, hey, this practice has these moral guidelines and principles. And so we have something to more clearly judge this corporation, this business model on, right? We have this much higher exacting standard to hold you to. And it should be held to that standard. But at the same time, maybe the most important thing is getting a lot of people an ability to practice yoga. And training a lot of people because they can then take every other message of yoga or the seven other limbs besides the asana into their daily life, into their circles of communities that extend beyond a studio or a practice. For those unfamiliar with the eight limb path, it's an eight limb path of yoga. And I highly recommend kind of looking into understanding your relationship with it, both if you practice the asana, which is the physical part of yoga and not. Yoga actually started out not even as a physical practice, but it was more of a meditative practice, a way to reach stillness and peace and then ultimately enlightenment in the body. The asana was cultivated or added onto the practice as a means to prepare your body to quiet your mind. So our minds are so busy and running that the asana was meant to help cultivate uh, a level of effort in the body, which would then create more ease for you to find stillness in your mind. I'd love to speak to some of the parts of the eight limb path that you are working with or are resonating with you most right now. Mm. Brief overview of the eight limbs. So limbs one and two, the yamas and niyamas, almost act as a governing body, a moral structure, code of ethics to apply to yourself and others, to apply to internal observation and then also behavior. I always think it's just so important that that's what the practice begins with, that it is not asana one, it is asana after that, that those things must be understood or held to then begin to move the practice into your body. After asana or the third limb, we have pranayama, which is your breath, which is turning inward or meditation in a sense. Dharana, which is suspended or concentrated focus and attention. And then finally, dhyana and samadhi, which are, dhyana is like releasing, full-fledged letting go, perhaps like an arrival at non-attachment. And samadhi is like a nirvana or pure bliss or full realization. And I, especially those last two limbs that I've always felt like a goofball speaking towards. Because I'm not sure, Sasha, if I've ever achieved pure bliss. I'm going to be really honest with you. <laughs> and I've been laughing at myself as I lead these lectures as well in the teacher training space. I hope that that is a piece of practice that is more internal or personal because if my job is to guide others towards pure bliss or full human actualization, 
that is too big an ask, especially for the amount people pay you at this point. But it is important to have these conversations with that as the overarching understanding, right? We've been alluding to these things throughout this chat. Yeah, the asana is just one of these limbs and this tiny, almost inconsequential thing. Yeah, and again, it's almost like, yes, the asana does get you into your body and gets you to that place. But is the asana reflective of the go, 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 sympathetic stress response show up to this workout class part of the way that we express in this world? Because like you said, our practice does not have to be physical. It Mm -hmm. is the mindful part of it. And oftentimes it's easier to walk yourself to a location to do yoga because location does have memory. Time does have memory. Like let's say every day at 6 p.m. you're going to the same room in the studio to practice yoga. Your mind will start to associate that time of day with like a more meditative, okay, this is when we calm down state, which there's something to be said for that routine. But I think it's a problem when you are only relying on that space to be able to access that because it's purely going to come from within. It's not from a studio, just like we've seen with COVID. That can all be taken away. And if you don't have the internal toolkit, then it's amazing to start building that relationship, but you need to take it outside of the space in which you're used to having it. I love that terminology, internal toolbox. That's just such an exciting realm of thought. You can impart these little pieces on people. And what I've always thought about advice, because to an extent, maybe you give advice in a yoga class, is like, Don't take advice from people whose life you don't want. Don't take advice that doesn't apply to you, right? We are simply creating an offering as instructors, hopefully offering all of these tools because that is our responsibility out of respect for the practice and the tradition. But it's not our job if people pick up the ability to reach their full bliss from us. And what you said too about don't take advice from someone that you maybe like don't really resonate with or their life doesn't look like the life you want. I think it's also okay to totally resonate with one thing someone is saying and then not resonate with another thing they're saying. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you have to write off the person. It doesn't mean you have to fully embody or adopt or worship the person. You could just be like, hey, I like that piece of advice. Let me put that in my toolbox. Oh, that didn't resonate. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. That doesn't mean you're a good person. That doesn't mean you're not my idol or you're not a human that I will listen to. We don't have to completely align with every single person that we learn from. Yeah. It also then gives you permission if you perhaps only have bad interactions with someone or you have a general distaste for them, you know they still have value and worth and that there is still something that you can learn from them. Absolutely. What has been the number one thing that you have learned about yourself in the past four years and then in the past year? So two things. Oh, how spooky. Okay. Four years. In four years, I both hope and do think that it has been a detachment from ego and that learning that in my practice has hopefully helped me evaluate it in other areas of my life. Like what is this internal voice popping up? Is this my inner self speaking or is this my ego trying to protect me from an ego wound, which hopefully I can sustain at this point? So I think in four years, it's been navigating with that. In the last year, the thing that's been occurring to me the most in now embodying this as my full-time career has been how to counterbalance 
this constant language and this constant marketing towards healing and wellness, how to exist in a wellness space and not buy into all of the woo-woo-goo-goo, magic powder will fix you, magic sniff-sniff thing that you rub on your wrist will give you clarity and peace and solve your life. And this bracelet will give you grounding. You know, I've been learning and I'm still learning how to promote wellness in an accessible way and how to apply that to myself and how to let it look different every single day. That's all so powerful. And it's an honor to learn from you as you navigate that. One other thing I would like to ask is where do you see yourself going in 2023? Do you have any major visions or aspirations for yourself or general direction in which you want to propel your future and propel your energy and intention towards? That is so funny that you ask that. I visited home last weekend. Home is Dallas, Texas. And I've been discussing with my closest friends and with my family that I am really, really coming to a place where I need to make a full pivot, like a big life change soon. I don't know if it's going to be moving locations. I don't know if it's going to be a full career change. I think that I've reached a point, very honestly, where my relationship with yoga, with moving my body, has been impacted and overshadowed by having this as a full-time career. So I am honestly right now in a position where I'm reevaluating it and where I'm ready to let some things go. And I really think that's going to be healthiest for me. And I don't think it means a discontinuation of any aspect of my practice, even the physical. But I guess the answer to your question is lots of pivots, lots of changes, lots of reevaluation is in the air. One of my friends shared some wisdom that your 20s are about getting comfortable with starting over. And Ooh. that has carried me. Starting over, that's okay. Try again, another data point. And so that's what just came up for me of getting comfortable with starting over and pivoting and letting go and even drawing awareness to that need is such a powerful place to start. That's the scariest place to start. And it's incredibly powerful. So I continue to look up to you and your ability to just be truthful, not only with yourself, but also with everyone that comes into your space because you hold space for so, so many and you do so honestly and authentically. A truly just here is where I'm at, raw, human, expressive. And so I thank you for continuing to show up like that because it makes all the difference for those that are in your presence. Thank you, Sasha. You know what? Maybe there is a benefit to navigating the world from a raw place for a while. Also, I just want to say, in terms of holding space for people as well, I got to take Sasha's class a couple of weeks ago and... I didn't tell you this, but when I went through teacher training, I had this lead, Shannon, and I just remember her class. I rarely experienced since being able to actually go internal, not think about another thing and like leave in the trance. And I just want to say how much I experienced that in your class, how I absolutely stole your words happily <laughs> and have continued to echo them in my class and that I really am so gratified to even be a part of this conversation right now because I also look up to you and I have a lot to learn from you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Let me I so love you. Much. And also everybody go take soft class. It's a joy. <laughs> 
No, that actually, it means a lot. And it's a continuous reminder that even the people that we are teaching, we have so much to learn from. And I have one final question for you today. What makes you human to the fullest? Oh, music, art. I read a book last night that made me sob, sob. I wouldn't even necessarily recommend it because it was a bit of a downer. I'm going to be honest. But I've just been thinking about how there is an art in yoga. There is art in moving your body. There is an art in tapping into your breath. And anything that reminds you that you're alive, anything that reminds me that I'm alive and just how alive I am is what I want to spend time with right now. I love that. Returning to just the magic and the freedom and the beauty that can be found from slowing down and tuning into art and beauty for the sake of beauty, not for the sake of getting anything done. So where can listeners connect with you? Where can they find you? I would absolutely love for people to connect with you in any way that you would like to share. Well, for now, you can come visit me at Cork Power on the Upper East Side. I've actually always been really finicky about using social media for yoga. So I would not say that I have a promotional base for it anywhere online. Mostly just you got to show up. After all my, you don't have to show up on your mat. I'm like, well, I'm inaccessible. You can catch me at the Krispy Kreme next to my studio. <laughs> I highly recommend taking Katie's class or just taking Katie's learnings and sitting with them and taking the opportunity to be open and raw and vulnerable and honest with yourself. If you are go, go, go nonstop, are you sitting with some kind of discomfort that maybe you are masking? It's a difficult conversation and inquiry to have with yourself, but should you be in a space where you feel resourced enough to do so, it is an incredibly important one. So if this conversation inspired you, I offer you the opportunity to look inwards and see how you might make your physical practices, your physical schedule, more of an introspective opportunity to sit and just be with what is, be with yourself. You don't need to be changed or fixed. You just need to be comfortable with acknowledging what is and accepting it. So again, Katie, thank you so much for your time, for your honesty. I so appreciate all the wisdom you've shared with me, both in my teacher training, in our conversations and now. And I so appreciate you taking the time to share all of your thoughts in such an open, raw and honest way. So thank you. Thank you, Sasha. Thanks everybody for listening. Just remember, you don't have to earn rest. <laughs> Wow. Just take a moment. That conversation had a lot of important reflections, important thoughts, and opportunities to consider your own relationship to fitness, to the fitness industry, whether you partake or you teach or you lead or you hold space for others. Let this be an opportunity to get honest with yourself about the sustainability of your practices where you're showing up honestly, and maybe where you need to manage your energy a little bit more. Thank you so, so much for listening. If you have any questions, I am always available via Instagram. Other than that, thank you so much for your time and your energy sharing it with me and with yourself first and foremost. I will see you here next week. Thank you.